Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Good to be with you once again. And you know, in South Africa, we're never short of things to talk about. And uh, so many things swirling around in the news cycle at the moment that uh, I just thought we would uh, come and chat about some of the more fundamental ones that are affecting our society, not just this year and last year, but who knows, probably for the next decade. It's uh, one of those, uh, just one of those things that you, you have to keep kind of debating them. So I thought we'd bring back into studio uh, Mark Oppenheimer. He is an advocate. You might remember we chatted to him last on the land uh, expropriation issue. So now we're going back in studio and uh, we're talking, we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. Uh, including free speech, we're going to talk about non-racialism, all the sorts of nice goodies that help make up the new South Africa as it is. Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you again. Thanks for having me back. It's been quite a while. Yeah, it has been. Uh, it's literally like you just stepped out the door and came back. Uh, but good to have you in the studio. We, we appreciate it when you do come in. Uh, free speech, right? Uh, South Africans, um, it's kind of funny, I think, because... We're sort of, on the one hand, quite cavalier about our free speech, uh, and and uh, you can really say all sorts of things in South Africa that I think you probably would battle to even say uh, in America sometimes. Uh, but at the same time, we sometimes do have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction when it comes to banning things that we don't like or, or, or telling people to be quiet to Twitter as, a, as an awful place in this regard. Uh, and And so I thought it was important to talk about free speech for a start. Let's, let's talk about some basics. Why is free speech important? Why, why, and why should it be protected? Never mind just being able to say it. Sure. So, one of the best arguments for free speech is the idea that uh, if we want to find out what's true in the world, we need to listen to a variety of different opinions uh, and claims, even if they're false. So, the way that you work out if something is a bad idea is by clashing it against another idea. So there's this uh, tradition that they have at Oxford, which is um, for one side in the debate to argue why slavery ought to be permissible. Now, most right-thinking people are going to say, obviously slavery is a crime against humanity and it's immoral. Why even debate it? Well, the, the reason why you debate it is so that you can remind yourself why it's wrong. Um, there's very good reason to debate people like flat earthers. Um, you know, the view that they hold is on its face incorrect. Um, but it's quite useful to remind yourself why the earth is geoid shaped by sort of understanding their counter arguments. So you can sharpen your sword. On the other hand, what might happen is that, um, on the slavery example, it, it used to be the other way around. Um, people, so we had slavery in the world for a very long time. Uh, it was seen as perfectly um, morally appropriate. And through speech, people were able to persuade others that it was wrong. Um, and so minds were changed. So sometimes we can we can come to the correct view um, by being able to sort of allow the truth to, to sort of see the light of day. And sometimes we can understand why the views we already hold are true. So that's enormously useful. Yeah, I, I, I certainly can see that. Uh, but you certainly have people who are say, particularly say in a South African 
uh, kind of context that uh, for for a long time, you know, uh, speech was used to oppress people, uh, you know, racist speech uh, and ideas in the society were extremely damaging, uh, for example, because this is often one that comes up. And, and so surely it's better since we know that this is a bad idea. Maybe we should just, uh, uh, you know, not allow people to, to spread that because of the damage it could do to the society. So I'll give you a, a really good case for allowing speech that we think of as repugnant and racist or anti-Semitic, which is that it's you get free information. So if people are allowed to say anti-Semitic things, if they're allowed to wave swastikas and utter uh, racial slurs, you get a sense in a society of how much of an appetite is there for that view? How many anti-Semites are there floating around? Um if you're allowed to say it and we see that it's very rarely said, well, then we can rest easy. Uh, if you're not allowed to say it, you know, the problem is that those people then are will express their anti-Semitic um, sentiments in other ways. It's not like telling someone you cannot say this changes their minds. What happens is that you've, you've closed the steam valve. Uh, and the pot eventually boils over into genuine action, so you can have people acting out in violent, um, harmful ways um, that are not just about affecting people's emotions, but about you know destroying their property or uh, you know affecting them, them uh, physically. So there's very good reason to uh, tolerate speech that we think of as repugnant. We don't tolerate rainbows and sunshine. We tolerate things that we don't like, but we say we're going to let those views uh, be present in our society. Um, because the cost of disallowing them is much worse. You know, we must be careful that the medicine isn't worse than the poison. Now, what do you take of one of the sort of more left-wing critiques, I suppose, of, uh, of, of a free speech argument where it says, look, the, the whole world is operated by power anyway, right? So uh, I don't have the same free speech as uh, the guy who owns the newspaper because he can have, commission multiple columns and and do whatever, and it's only rich people who own newspapers anyway. So, so actually, there's not a real, uh, uh, there's like a real imbalance here, and 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 actually, the, the oppressed in the society are actually excluded out of the system because uh, m- most powerful people um, are, are able to to control it because of their the the power in the system. Is that a valid the valid view on on free speech? Well, I think the the facts on the ground have just shifted so dramatically. You know that. Um, uh, almost everyone listening to um, this interview is going to be a publisher, um, that they're going to have a Facebook account or a Twitter account, that they're able to disseminate their ideas uh, without any financial cost to them. You no longer have to own a, um, a, a, a print press station to get your ideas out into the world. Um, you know, in fact, it's, you know, you can rely on a different kind of um, power. In other words, uh, you know, expressing a populist view or having friends on Twitter or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you can get your ideas out there. So the marketplace has grown quite dramatically. It's become more egalitarian and that so many more people can, can participate, which means that we have a lot more noise. So, um, I think there are a lot of views that are expressed on social media that we weren't accustomed to hearing because, as you say, the powerful kind of played a gatekeeper role and kept certain ideas, um, off of their newspapers. Um, which means we have to confront more and more uncomfortable ideas. Uh, the Internet also makes it much easier for people to find um, people like them. So, you know, flat earthers, for example, were kind of seen as a, a joke, really, um, and until enough of them could meet each other online and, you know, create organizations and sort of they're not they're not just pranksters. They actually believe this stuff, and part of that is because they've got this online community and they can disseminate information. And as I say, even if that information is false, it's useful for others to be able to counter-dialogue it. Um, 
Look, having said this, I'm, I'm not actually a free speech fundamentalist. So in the sense that I do believe that there are some fair restrictions on speech. So I want to get into that. And actually the big tech thing in the social media, I think, is has really taken the free speech debate to a new level because of some of the factors that you're citing. I want to talk about them in a little bit. But when we talk about reasonable uh, restrictions on free speech, uh, the first thing that we think of in a South African context, obviously, the Constitution. Because uh, in South Africa, you can't say absolutely whatever you want, even though we do have quite broad free speech uh, boundaries. So let's maybe talk about that. What in South Africa are you allowed to say and what are you not allowed to say? Because very often people say, oh, well, you can't say that it's hate speech. Uh, and, it, and it may or may not be. So, so what actually are you allowed to say according to the Constitution? Yeah, that's that's the important um, bedrock. You know, as you say, in South Africans, one of the things we can agree on is that this Constitution is a foundational document and should be taken very seriously. So Section 16 of the Constitution sets out what your free speech rights are, and they're very broad rights. So it says that everyone has the right to free speech, which includes the right of artistic freedom. So it's not just um, – it's the – it's not just the creation of works of, you know, works of art. It's the creative process as well that's protected. Um, it's scientific inquiry, um, the, the idea that you can um, freely impart and receive information. So your free speech rights are hindered not just when you're told that you cannot say something, but also when you're told that you cannot hear something. Um, so we have those very broad protections. And then we have three limitations. So the Constitution says the right does not extend to the following three things. The one is propaganda for war. So we're talking about a very cataclysmic harm. The second is the incitement of imminent violence, the idea that um, your speech will almost immediately um, cause a violent thing to occur. And I don't mean violence in the way that it's often used by millennials, like uh, it's going to cause me to burst into tears and your words are a violence. I mean actual violence. I mean destruction of property, killing people, you know, maiming them, that sort of thing. And the third is the hate speech clause. The Constitution says... Hate speech is the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. So you'll see that that incitement is very important. It's not just that the words themselves are harmful. It's that they call upon people to visit harm in one of those groups. Now, the Constitution mentions those four groups um, for a reason, which is that there's a history of persecution against people on those grounds. So as Jews, we know that um, religion has been used to, you know, uh, exterminate exterminate people, um, that um, apartheid was used to oppress people on the grounds of race, that there is, you know, arguably an epidemic of gender-based violence. Um, the Supreme Court of Appeal um, has, through case law, um, added in an additional ground at the moment, which is sexual orientation. Um, and the argument is that um, there has been a long history of oppression of, of gay people in South Africa, that um, gay people have been beheaded for being gay, uh, and that there's good reasons to add in as an analogous ground. But at the same time, uh, the court um, uh, removed a series of other grounds um, from legislation which governs um, hate speech um, on the grounds that they were not equivalent uh, and that they were too much of an infringement into the into the realm of free speech. Um, things like um, belief, um, for example, or uh, um, uh, age, uh, those sorts of things. So when we're dealing with hate speech, the idea is that, well, you remove this imminency requirement. Um, it doesn't have to happen now. And we water violence down to harm, but harm is still quite serious. Harm is going to be physical harm or psychological harm. 
Psychological harm is not the same as an emotional harm, like I'm sad or angry when I hear this. Psychological harm is something like PTSD, where you've you've suffered a a severe psychological trauma that's going to require counselling. Um, and again, there must be this call to action to get that harm visited upon one of those groups. And the idea why we remove imminency is that you can create an environment over time where you disseminate enough of that stuff that eventually it erupts. And we've seen that happen in South Africa um, with regards to xenophobic attacks. So um, in 2008 and um, a few months ago, um, we uh, we had an, another outburst of xenophobic violence where you know people were attacked on the grounds that they were from other parts of Africa. They had their shops burned. Um, people were burned alive. Um, and part of that is this idea that you demonize the people for enough time and call for action to be perpetrated against them, and eventually it does actually burst out into the real world. And so there's very good reason to um, have sanctions for that kind of speech. And let's talk about the sanctions for speech because there is a lot of criticism uh, around how our courts are interpreting some of these uh, hate speech things. And also, it, it, what are the actual sanctions that you can get? Because it seems to be, in some cases, there are these massive monetary fines. Sometimes there's been jail time. Uh, what actually, first of all, in your view, how are things being dealt with by our courts? And, and is it a, a good, fair process? Um, and, and, and secondly, what, what actually can happen to you uh, if, if, if you're found to be uh, engaging in this kind of hate speech? Yes, well, I think what's confusing about it is that, as you say, um, a number of very high-profile cases have come out in the last couple of years. I'd say the uh, the first one that pops in people's minds is that of Penny Sparrow. Um, so I can tell you a little bit about sort of how our law has evolved um, since then uh, and, uh, and and what's happened. So to remind you, um, Penny Sparrow, I think it was at the beginning of 2016, um, put out a statement on Facebook um, saying that... Um, uh, she basically sort of drew this rather racist analogy with black people and monkeys um, and uh, and said that she will refer now to all black people on beaches littering as monkeys. Um, and she was then held liable for hate speech. Now, we can recognize that the speech is detestable speech, that it is um, distasteful and racist. Um, and what that court did to, to make a hate speech finding was it made use of uh, the Equality Act, which at the time... Um, Section 10 of that act defined hate speech quite differently from the way that the Constitution defines it. Um, and what it did was it said that hate speech is speech which is hurtful, semicolon, um, promotes or propagates hatred, semicolon, um, incites or incites harm or is harmful. And it was unclear whether that you had to read those things together, in other words, conjunctively, that all three had to be present, or disjunctively, that only one had to be present. What the court found was that it could, it one was sufficient, and they said the words were hurtful words, um, which I think is true. It was hurtful, um, and therefore she should be um, should be sanctioned. Um, she then received a fine in the Equality Court of 150,000 rand. There was another process engaging in so, which was one of criminenuria, um, where she received a suspended jail sentence. Now, criminenuria is um, is a crime. It's a common law crime. It's the um, intentional um, uh, interference with someone else's dignity in a very severe manner. Um, now, one of the arguments is that she never targeted a particular individual. Um, she referred to a group, and that's why hate speech would have been the more uh, uh, accurate category to be in, which is about groups, not individuals. There's a there's a recent case where um, 
Praveen Gordon uh, laid a hate speech complaint and uh, it was dismissed on the basis that, well, he, he went in as an individual. Um, so maybe Krimineuri would have been a, a better um, thing for him to have run. Um, now, we know Vicky Momberg, again, was involved in two separate, separate instances and actually spent time in jail um, on, the, on, on the grounds of Krimineuria. One of the – there were two big developments with regards to um, Section 10 of, of the Equality Act. The one was uh, the Kamalo case, um, which I appeared, uh, and there I, I, uh, I argued on behalf of the Human Rights Commission that the way to read those um, – um, those sections was conjunctively that that would make it uh, constitutionally sound, so that you had to have all three, uh, and that was held up by the court. There, the complaint was against a person called Valapi Kamalo, who had said that uh, we should do to white people what Hitler did to the Jews: they should be burnt alive, hacked to death, and their children turned to garden fertilizer. So there, you see that all three things were present. Um, you know, it's incredibly hurtful to refer to white people in that manner. There is an actual call to action, which is that they should be annihilated uh, and that you're propagating hatred against that group. Um, now, the recent developments there is that the Supreme Court of Appeal in a matter called Kualani um, has declared um, Section 10 of, of Papuda unconstitutional and replaced it with language that mirrors um, the Constitution. It's an interim measure. It has to be confirmed by the Constitutional Court, and they provide Parliament with time to write in their own language. Okay, very, very interesting uh, stuff there. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking again to Mark Oppenheimer. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the -the off-the-wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Talking to Mark Oppenheimer today uh, about a variety of issues facing our country. He is an advocate uh, and constitutional law expert. Mark, uh, so those are some of the the legal developments that we discussed just before the break uh, about how our law is developed and, and what it means. But basically, it comes down eventually still to those kind of core aspects that you that you were talking about: uh, incitement to violence, uh, the aspects that uh, are connected to harm have to be connected to uh, race or, or, or gender or, or whatever. And that's that's the South African context. But what's interesting about the free speech issue is that it has gone global with with social media, uh, and 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 there's a real question about. What do platforms do? Are they responsible? Do I have recourse, for example, uh, if I get kicked off of Facebook? Uh, do I have recourse to say, well, Facebook is restricting my free speech? How do we start to see this in a, in a more global context? Yes. So, as you say, there is a kind of um, global debate about um, the importance of free speech and what its just limitations are. Um, we're starting to see more and more censorship online. Um, and it seems like we're going through a moment where that censorship is starting to intrude on speech that would be at least protected in South Africa. Um, one of the arguments uh, raised is, well, Facebook is a private platform. Um, you know, you sign up as a user. You must agree to whatever their rules are. Um, I think there's something disingenuous about that. Um, I think two billion people are Facebook users, you know, um, close to a third of the world's population. This is not a normal private company arrangement. This is not like, you know, um, 
the terms and conditions that you, that you sign with a, with an ordinary contractor. You're talking about a very public community. We're talking about something that's six times the size of America. Um, so you, you want it to kind of, but rather to think of Facebook like a state uh, as opposed to a private entity. Um, and so what you want are rules that are going to be in accordance with, with what's just. Um, so they have their own hate speech rules. Um, they seem to be quite different from the kind that I've illustrated. So it's not about whether you've incited harm. It's often whether you've said something that could be viewed as insensitive. Um, there's a there's a further concern, which is that a lot of it's a lot of the decisions that are made to remove pages or block comments is done um, automatically. And part of that is because Facebook's you know only got so many resources available. So designing an algorithm which can sort of look for certain things that are uh, going to fall foul is going to be useful because it can stop it immediately. Um, but it also means that you wind up um, over um, censoring speech. So stuff that ought to be protected winds up getting blocked. So, for example, there was a uh, company that ran a page called Khmer Bees. Um, it's uh, uh, they, they they kind of sell honey or something. Um, now, Khmer should remind you of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and that's obviously what the bot picked up. So it sort of looked for a search term and said, oh, okay, this must be a pro-Khmer Rouge site, you know, responsible for genocide, therefore we're going to remove the page. Um, but obviously the Khmer B honey spot had nothing to do with the Khmer Rouge. So there's that kind of problem. Uh, occasionally they do use, they do use human beings, um, but they're often required to make decisions very rapidly. So they've hired a lot of people out in the Philippines who so they're paying, you know, small amounts of money and they've got, I think, between 8 and 30 seconds to look at a post and decide whether it should be allowed or not. So one of the other things that Facebook restricts um, is um, nude content. Um, and how this sort of came to light was that a lot of um, new moms who had photos of themselves breastfeeding suddenly had their photos taken down from Facebook and they were alarmed by this. There's nothing pornographic about a mother breastfeeding, um, but it was being picked up by Facebook's rule on nudity and eventually Facebook changed its rule. Um, from what I understand, there are appeal procedures that people can engage in. Um, someone who was prominently deplatformed uh, recently is the cartoonist Germ. So um, Germ had 60,000 followers on his Facebook page. Uh, Germ's one of the most prolific cartoonists in South Africa. He's produced over 7,000 cartoons um, on a wide variety of issues. I think he's uh, well-beloved. He's produced a number of books. Um, and uh, he um, produced the cartoon, which uh, Helen Ziller tweeted about. The cartoon uh, is is basically an attack on race generalizations. Um so um, for those that haven't seen it, I'll describe it very briefly. It's four panels. The, f- the first panel, you have a person in EFF regalia uh, speaking to a white person at a bar. And he says, uh, you need to give back the land that you stole from me. And uh, the white guy responds. He says, well, you first need to apologize for raping my wife. And the third panel, the EFF guy is visibly sweating. He says, but I never did that. And the fourth panel, the white guy says, well, exactly. And the point is that it's meant to be a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, a claim is made in the first panel, um, and it is reduced to an absurd claim with an equally absurd claim. You know, the idea is that you don't hold individual people liable for crimes committed by people that look like them. Um, that you cannot hold, you cannot say, well, some white people stole land, therefore you're white, therefore you're a land thief. Um, so the point of the cartoon is really to sort of say rationalizations are wrong, they're immoral, we used to do it in South Africa a lot, and we shouldn't do it anymore. Um, and there was a huge public outcry when uh, Zilla tweeted the cartoon, I think partly because um, uh, Zilla is sort of seen as a soft target. Um, 
and uh, it was sort of the the headlines read like uh, uh, Zilla compares all black men to rapists, which is not at all what the cartoon does and not at all what Zilla was saying. So only a really poisoned mind could come up with a conclusion like that. But ultimately what happened was that a group of people who didn't like the cartoon decided to target Germ and uh, report his page and uh, it, was, it was taken down. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting uh, phenomenon. And, and that is something else where, uh, you know, we're talking about the sort of factual issues related to, to, to censorship. But what we're seeing on Twitter, which is this like roving kangaroo court, which now seems to operate, uh, there's definitely a shutting down of space on a more like social level when something happens. And I don't think it's on a particular issue. It's just you get a bunch of people who are outraged and suddenly there's, particularly on Twitter, lots of tweeting and shouting and screaming. And then it, it, it definitely, uh, Twitter has this funny, uh, this funny aspect where on the one hand everyone can say everything and on the other hand you have these packs of wolves which clamp down on stuff that they don't like. Yeah, I think we should be very wary of Twitter. Um, so partly because a lot of those accounts are anonymous. We don't know if they're actually operated by human beings. Um, we know that a lot of accounts are, uh, are robot accounts uh, or they're sock puppet accounts. In other words, what you have is one person controlling a thousand accounts trying to create the impression that everybody thinks this thing. Um, so it's it's manufactured outrage. Um, so journalists often seem to fall into this trap where they cover something that happened on Twitter as if it's a real-world event. Uh, it's it's not. It's very easy to sort of, you know, uh, write an article in your underwear at home by just, you know, browsing, browsing through your Twitter stream. Um, and I think one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more of this is that newsrooms have less money. So to send a reporter out to go and do investigative work has become expensive. It's very easy to get them to do desktop research. Um, but they're not really engaged in the real world. Yeah, and, 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 and it does pose another problem is that, uh, you know, we, we have this terrible term which they call fake news, right? Uh, which, it's a very much abused term, but there is this real question when people are having to make decisions on, for example, elections and politics and that sort of thing, uh, that, that you are able to flood social media with things that are fake or, or, or factually not true. And it's quite hard to police that sort of thing. Uh, and, and even if you can, you know, sort of write it the wrong, sometimes it's too late because the election's already happened or, or, or something, someone's retracted or, or whatever. Yes, so one might be tempted to thinking, well, we should have a law against that. Mm -hmm. You know, we should stop people from producing fake content. Then my question becomes, all right, well, who's going to enforce that law? And do you think they're going to do it uh, in a partisan way or do you think they're going to do it in a fair way? You know, if you think about how um, districting works in the state, so they have a first-past-the-poll system um, so that a particular geographical area votes for a candidate. It is so highly partisan how those things are drawn up you know, um, that's when one of the parties gets to power and gets a chance to redistrict, they do it with glee because they can skew the results. So I'm very wary about giving anyone the power to go and regulate speech because we might have a partisan result. Um, you know, when you give states that kind of power, they're going to abuse it. Um, so what you then want to do is be an informed citizen. So hold on a second. You know, there is propaganda floating around. Just because I'm reading it online doesn't make it true that we don't have the same gatekeeper function we used to have with mainstream media news where you had a, you know, a, a good editor who was sort of doing lots of fact-checking. The requirements on news desk now is to kind of rather be first than be right. Um, so I think what's important is that people, when they read something, pause a little bit. 
Um, I think a lot of people who are experts in a field will know what this is like. So they'll read an article in the newspaper and go, well, I'm a lawyer, and the reporting that you've seen on this is completely bogus. And they'll turn over to the science page and go, that's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, if you if you can see it in your own field that there's very bad reporting, uh, and my friends who are scientists uh, constantly complain about how bad science reporting is, you know, you should have that skepticism. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about the area in which we live is that it's become much easier to find that information. You just have to be pickier about where you look. Well, I think that that's also, uh, you know, Something which we don't find is like intelligent use of information by people. I think that there are ways that you could think about how big tech affects speech, but ultimately one of the most effective is just informed users of it. You know, people, you'll often find telltale signs when people share things that you like, guys, come on. There, there, there's no official author, right, with any kind of background. There's no, uh, there's this massive screaming headline which doesn't bear any facts to the content that's, uh, p- put there. The, 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 the website is like Hungry Bear Hello 405, you know. So the, so the, actually, if you look at it, there are a lot of ways to immediately, before you even start reading, start to tell whether this is a legitimate story or not. Yes, and I think you're right. It's sort of, and, and you might think that that's, you know, um, Facebook might have some reason to prioritize what shows up on news feeds based on some kind of, uh, is this coming off a known scam site, you know, um, you know, and, and not wanting to sort of, uh, let that stuff get prominence on a news feed, that there might be good reason for that. But yeah, for users to kind of play the work themselves as well and go, hold on a second, where's this thing actually from? I mean, you, you have like deliberate satire sites which catch people out like Babylon Bee and the Onion and that's always very amusing when s- someone, you know, disseminates that stuff, uh, as if it were true. But then there's other more pernicious versions of that, um, and, uh, people should be wary. Um, and you can, and, and what's crazy is you can fact check this thing very c- simply. Like, it's very easy to either look on a fact checking website. There's a number of them out there, like, like Snopes or, or, or Media Check Africa or these sorts of things. But you can also just Google it because very quickly someone would have said, this is a completely stupid website and you shouldn't listen to it. Yes, yeah. So I think it's, it's incumbent upon people to do that exercise, um, before sharing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it makes you a responsible citizen. Um, and I think, as you as you point out, if the headline is screaming too loudly, that's reason of itself to be a bit wary, you know. Um, so, someone once said to me, also, think about what you're sharing and what you're saying on social media, because if you wouldn't want your grandmother, if you didn't want to say it to your grandmother, then perhaps you shouldn't put it on your Facebook feed. Yes. Which I think is a, is, is, is quite a nice rule of thumb, uh, especially if you're trying to avoid getting into a lot of trouble, uh, as people have done. Yeah, although what we do find is that the marketplace of ideas works quite quickly. So if you put out if you put out something fake on, on Facebook, you might get a couple of people sharing it, and then you'll get someone quite quickly, I think, going, hold on a second, have you looked at this, check out the Snopes thing, pointing out this is wrong. You know, that's that's truth in action, which is which is quite exciting to see. Um, I mean, one of the, the greatest experiments in this is something like Wikipedia. You know, um, it's this... This idea, I think all of us use Wikipedia now without really thinking about it. Um, it's been normalized. But when it came out, it was seen as totally revolutionary, the idea that you could trust ordinary Joes to write articles and that anyone could change that article. And people thought, well, it's just going to be littered with completely false things all over the show. Um, what you find is that there's an active community that cares about truth um, and that it's, you know, the way to test it is 
go and try and vandalize a Wikipedia page. Go and take a prominent page and edit it so that you put in something clearly false and see how long it lasts. Uh, I'd be surprised if it lasts an hour. Um, yeah, yeah, the Wikipedia article uh, aspect is interesting because they, I think as much as what you're saying about an active truth community, there is also uh, – they've had to tighten up on certain kinds of referencing and certain – uh, although the marketplace of ideas, as you say, is, is out there, there's certain uh, kind of uh, bridges and checks and balances to make sure that what's being put out is there's certain forms to the marketplace. Yes, uh, there's actually a wiki governance. Yeah. So um, behind every article, you'll see that there's a meta page behind it where people are having discussions about what should be included and what shouldn't and what referencing format and, you know, is this substantiated properly? I mean, Wikipedia, when they started, didn't have a footnote system at all. Um, and at the time, I think there were three and a half million articles in English, and then they decided, well, these all need to be overhauled, um, and they were. You know, so it's kind of amazing how designing a clever set of rules behind the system can generate very good results. Talking about uh, free speech today on 101.9, I'm going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Talking today to advocate Mark Oppenheimer on some of the issues that are facing South Africa and the world. Uh, Mark, let's move on to something uh, slightly different. Um, We've had a lot of debate around the issue of black economic empowerment uh, in South Africa in the last few years. Uh, and obviously you expect this to be uh, slightly partisan because of our history and because of the, the, the politics behind it. But what's interesting for me is that people are starting to say, well, getting away from the debate about is it right or is it wrong, starting to put new alternatives on the table and say, look, Whatever we think about BE, we think this is a better system, and here's why. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to to expand on that discussion a bit uh, and start to understand how this particular uh, discussion is uh, evolving. So uh, to, to begin with, if we can maybe do a, a, a short critique, why do people think uh, that BE is a good thing or a bad thing to begin with? Sure. So I think in a country like South Africa where we've had uh, – systemic uh, race-based discrimination um, where people were uh, locked out of owning property, were not allowed to vote, um, that we want to redress the wrongs of the past. And I think that, as I said, justice requires redressing past wrongs. Um, And so part of the assumption is that if you disenfranchise people on the basis of race, that your redress measures should then be racial redress measures. And a lot of people think that that's very intuitive, that you, uh, you use the same mechanism to fix it. Um, my response is that the source of our problems has been this sick obsession with race and that race cannot be a part of our solutions. And this is what we find in, in our section one of our constitution, the notion that South Africa is a nation founded on the value of non-racialism. Now, non-racialism is different from non-racism. Non-racism is that you don't discriminate against people on the grounds of their race. Non-racialism is even more radical, the idea that we treat each other like human beings, that we judge each other on the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Um, so if you, if you believe in non-racialism and you believe in redress, well, then what? And to my mind, the answer is that you can have 
a non-racial affirmative action scheme. So what you do is, and I, I think this is what uh, our Constitution really envisages, if you look at Section 9 of um, of the Constitution, it talks about equality and it talks about redress measures, and it talks about help, helping um, disadvantaged individuals um, or groups. So you can ask, well, is this group or individual someone who has suffered a disadvantage? And instead of treating people like tokens for a type where you say, well, you look like someone who was treated badly, so we're going to pretend that you are, we actually look at your particular set of circumstances. And um, one of the things that we can say in South Africa is that we already do this on a grand scale. So we disseminate 18 million social grants. Now, you don't qualify for a social grant on the basis of the color of your skin. It's a needs assessment. In other words, we ask, are you a child? Are you a pensioner? Do you earn below a certain threshold? Um, those are the kinds of questions, are you disabled, that we ask. Uh, it's entirely non-racial, and it is about redress. Um, so we really do it. Um, and the idea is that we can keep doing that in other sectors as well, so that if you feel like those that have been um, trampled on um, bypass injustices deserve a leg up so they can fairly compete, well, then you should ask a series of race-neutral questions, like about their income, um, where what, where they live, you know, what sort of level of education they got, um, you know, whether they speak English as a first, second, or third language, you know, all uh, neutral things. So, so, to, so basically, what I think a lot of people would say is, well, you know, we had uh, seventy years of apartheid or more, whatever it was, and you had colonialism and all this kind of stuff, and, and in any case, that that was focused at black people anyway, right? So. Why do we have to go through such a long, hard process where we can kind of say, well, we know who the offended uh, party is, uh, and we can just use that as a way without having to go through the hard graft of all these questions that you want to ask, say, well, you know, uh, and it, it additionally deals with some of the emotional aspect of being oppressed. Isn't, isn't it a, a simpler and more efficient system that way? Yeah, so the call is you want to use race as a proxy for disadvantage. Right. Um, so let me first of all say this, that I think if you look at disadvantage directly instead of having proxies um, – the vast majority of those that are disadvantaged are going to be black. Okay. But not all black people are the same. So they're not interchangeable for each other. Um, what we found with BEE is that a very small number of elite people have benefited over and over and over again. So um, the Institute for Racial Relations did some polling on BEE and they asked people, um, do you know anyone? What percentage of people do you know have, um, have benefited from BEE? And only 20% of people could identify other people. And they said, have you benefited from BB? And only 10% could say that. So what it's done is instead of redressing the disadvantage we care about, the poor and the vulnerable, we've ended up creating this class of people that uh, are professional uh, BE entrepreneurs. In other words, uh, your job is to take a slice in someone's business so that they can meet their BE criteria. And because you've done it, you can do more and more of it. So you don't have any of the kind of um, trickle-down effects that you would like. Um, there's also been a fixation on, on ownership as opposed to employment. So I spoke to someone uh, recently in London. He just immigrated. Um, and uh, so I said, oh, what did you used to do in South Africa? He said, well, I was a museum builder. I built um, almost all of the museums in South Africa, including the apartheid museum. And I said, well, why have you left? He said, well, you know, um, every single person that I employ is black, um, but we get no BE credit for it at all. And so we weren't able to get any work from the state uh, because uh, I'm a white owner. Um, and so he then had to leave. 
uh, which imperiled the jobs of all of those people. Yeah, because he was a kind-hearted person, he sold the business onto someone else who did shop putting work, um, and so those people were able to keep their jobs. Um, but it's not clear that they would have, you know, ordinarily. There must be plenty of people who, in other words, could do with a job, were provided a job, um, and were doing nothing to push up a BE points thing. It seems absurd to my mind. What about uh, maybe maybe a more, slightly more sophisticated argument on this, right, is that you often find, uh, for example, uh, that, that certain industries or certain places are, are dominated by, by certain groups. I think the last time you were on the show, you spoke to us about uh, the, the Cambodians who owned all the donut shops in, in California, for example, right? So if we had a history which is uh, been exclusionary, and and as a result of that, you have... Uh, groups of people dominating all sorts of different industries. And then on top of that, you suddenly have cultural, uh, you, because you have all the same people operating in all the same places, it's like a, a feedback loop. Is there an argument to say, well, you know, we're pretty sure people are nice and non-racial actually at heart, but what we really need to do is kick down the door a little bit to allow new entrants and, and, and new opportunities to people who they might not ordinarily uh, engage with. Do you think that there's a fair way? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of, of arguments to say why this might be a necessary thing. Yes, yeah, so I think you got to ask what kind of what kind of firm action strategy do you want? So the one is, as I say, is that you you're giving people an active preference. Okay, so you're saying we're going to put you at the front of the queue, and I'm saying you should do that on the basis of non-racial characteristics, and that um, that'll have a byproduct effect um, of a lot of those people being uh, being black. Now there's a you mentioned earlier there's some sort of uh, symbolic effect that you have from making it directly black. I think the worry that you have is if the, you target people on the basis of their race, it's very hard for your race to change. But your economic circumstances can. So you can be transformed through an affirmative action strategy in the sense that you came in poor and disadvantaged and you come out wealthy and enabled. Um, Whereas if you come in black, you're going to leave black. And you have to bear this particular mark of requiring special treatment. Um, and that creates all sorts of distrust um, and animosity. So if you think about um, Ashwin Wormser, the rugby player, um, was you know, stormed off of Supersport um, on the basis that he didn't want to be viewed as a player who was there for affirmative action reasons. He wants to be viewed as a player who was a good player. Um, you know, that there was a, a, uh, a, another recent case of litigation around this where someone felt enormously insulted for being described as an affirmative action candidate. Uh, it's, it's a huge invasion of your dignity to be regarded in that manner. And as I say, what's, what's great about our economic circumstances is that they can shift. If we care about diversity, I think we should care about the right kind of diversity, which is that you want the diversity of abilities, of skills, of ways of thinking, um, and that's not necessarily reflected in race. The idea that all black people think the same strikes me as incredibly racist. You know, we know put two Jews in a room and you're going to get three opinions. Uh, we're not interchangeable for each other. Um, again, if you care about demographic representation, um, Jews are massively overrepresented in whatever industry they get involved in. Um, Jews have tended to to flourish um, and uh, have been accused of you know uh, outperforming their numbers and that they should be kept in terms of their placements at universities um, or uh, their positions on um, you know constitutional courts or in a legal profession or in finance. Um, the fact that you happen to do well as an individual and other people who are part of your group have done well as well is not something that should be held against you. Um, we also know that people just have different preferences. Um, so 
uh, as I say, the, you know, the Cambodians through accidents of history and through preference have happened to dominate um, the donut selling industry in Southern California. It doesn't mean that anything unjust occurred. Um, so what you want is to ensure that there are no barriers um, that are going to remove people from, from offices they could get into. So in other words, if employers have racist policies when they say you cannot work for us because of your faith or the color of your skin or your sex, well, that seems like something worth sanctioning. Uh, and we may even want to take a so further steps by encouraging, uh, you know, um, those that are disadvantaged of, 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 you know, getting access. And maybe on the grounds of diversity, but I don't mean racial diversity or sexual diversity. I mean, the important kinds like skills diversity um but there should should we be saying that you know if if you you have a country that given the past that we have that there should all things being equal should be some kind of a mix of of the workplace and society it would seem unusual that if everyone did actually get the same playing field that we we shouldn't in any part of the economy be having uh, you know, people who were who were disadvantaged. They, if, for me, if this if this thing was working, if then you would actually be seeing a a situation which which would sort of even out, so to speak, that people would be because you have natural naturally talented people who then come up and start to to get places. Yeah. So what we're finding, as you say, is that it seems like BE is not working. Right. In other words, we don't have, um, let's say, the the representativity you might think ought to be there. Um, and you end up locking a lot of people out. So, um, look, there's a, for example, in the civil service, um, South African governments have always prioritized their own people, you know, so, or those that they understand to be their own people. So, under Smuts, uh, you know, if you were English speaking, then you got a civil service job. Under the Nats, if you're Afrikaans speaking, you got a civil service job. You know, under the ANC, if you're part of the correct ethnic affiliation, you get a civil service job. And the others are all driven out. Um, so, what you find is that this can have an interesting impact in that people are then kept out of government jobs uh, and they then have to do their own thing and they start uh, entrepreneurial enterprises. I mean, this is the history of Jewish persecution, you know, um, is that Jews were told that you can't come to our country clubs and, you know, we're not going to employ in our businesses. So Jews said, well, then we'll do our own thing. Uh, and they and they prospered because of that. Um, and so, you know, on, on the one hand, I think you have people who have prospered um, because they've been locked out of certain sections of the economy and others who've been driven overseas um, because they don't see a future for themselves in South Africa. I think the idea that, to give you an idea of how pernicious this can be, um, there are caps on how many people will be taken into medical school based on race. If you are Indian, uh, it is very, very hard to get into medical school. So... If you are an 18-year-old uh, Indian kid who's incredibly gifted in maths and sciences and would, on the basis of your own abilities, easily get into medical school, and you are told you cannot be here because of your accident of birth, that just strikes me as so repugnant. How can you hold this 18-year-old kid liable for, in other words, he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, he's uh, being persecuted on the basis of his skin color. He comes from a minority group that has already been persecuted um, during apartheid's history, and uh, now you're doing it to him again. Um, that in the Western Cape, um, there was a rule which capped the number of uh, coloreds that could work in the in the in the prison system because they said you're overrepresented. Um, and uh, there was a call for colors to disperse themselves around the rest of the country so they could have, you know, equitable number distributions. I mean, this sort of collectivist thinking, it's so horrifying. You know, we've come from this kind of past before. Uh, it really should be avoided. 
Well, uh, that's just about all we have time for today. Um, where could people find out more about this if they're interested in, in things like uh, non-racial BEE and, and alternatives to the system that we have at the moment? Well, um, Anthea Jeffrey from the Institute for Racial Relations has written a book called BE Helping or Hurting. Um, and uh, I've written uh, an article on, uh, on non-racial affirmative action for the Institute for Racial Relations and for the Helen Susan Foundation, uh, where I sort of sketch out uh, in a lot more detail uh, you know, the moral justification of such an argument and, and how it would work in practice. Okay, well, if you're interested in this debate and you want to see how it works, definitely go have a look at those uh, those those online resources. Mark, thank you so much for joining us uh, on, on the program, and uh, maybe we'll have you back again. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. Mark Oppenheimer there. He is uh, an advocate and expert on constitutional law issues. Brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you to everyone who helps put the show together. Vusi, who does the sound. Uh, Craig, who pushes all the big red buttons. And Mandy, who is uh, on the production. And thank you to you for listening. We'll chat to you again next week on the New Blue Review.